Good morning, everyone. It is great to be among friends today, and I'm glad to see so many of you with us, and welcome to all of you who are watching online as well. As you know, I love the simplicity of Jesus, the way he told simple stories and parables to illustrate spiritual truth. American humorist Mark Twain once said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts I do understand. Because it's actually not that difficult to understand what Jesus taught about how to live a grace-based relationship with God the Father. We make it so much more complicated than it really is. And over the last two weeks, I've tried to look at one of those simple statements recorded for us in three of the Gospels, how Jesus responded to that question, what is the greatest commandment? And you'll remember he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's both of those always working together. Passionately love God, purposefully love your neighbor. That's kind of Jesus' answer in terms of how to live his kind of life, the Christian life in a nutshell, to passionately love God and to purposefully love your neighbor. And as I wind up my preaching role here at NPPC this morning, I've been racking my brain over the last few months just to come up with one simple story from Jesus that could somehow summarize my 22 years here as your senior pastor. There's been so much to choose from, it's really hard to narrow it down. But here's one of Jesus' stories that means a lot to me, personally, and I just want to share it with you this morning. It's the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Sometimes called the parable of the farmer, or the sower, or the parable of the soils. Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and it goes like this. Later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake, and a large crowd soon gathered around him. So he got into a boat, and then he sat there, and he taught as the people stood on the shore. He told them many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds, and as he scattered them across his field, some of the seeds fell on the footpath, and the birds came and ate them up, and other seeds fell on the shallow soil and the underlying rock, and the seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plant soon wilted under the hot sun. And since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among the thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on the fertile soil. And they produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 times as much as has been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, folks, it's hard to imagine what this area was like back in 1737 when this church was founded. The land was purchased from the Lenape Indians uh, decades earlier in 1664. One of the first Europeans to visit this area was a man named Daniel Denton who described it this way, as a place where the grass was as high as a man's waist, the forest was flush with every variety of trees and animals you could imagine, deers, turkey, geese, cranes, swans, ducks, pigeons. He saw great fishing in the rivers and the lakes and most important, great places for cattle to graze. It was a paradise for people who had an eye for good farmland. He wrote in the year 1670, I must needs say that there, if there be a terrestrial Canaan, tis surely here, a land that floweth with milk and honey. That glowing real estate report started a boom, set the stage for the first settlers who ventured out from Elizabeth to this back country in the year 1720. They went through the west fields and then the spring fields and the first range of the Wachung Mountains, and they found good farmland around the fertile valley of the Passaic River. 
These pioneers were descendants of uh, Welsh, Scottish, and English Puritans, devoted to Christ and willing to risk everything to, for a new beginning. And they came to this intersection of two Lenape Indian trails called the Four Corners. And when they found it, they knew that they had found their home. You know those Native American trails as Springfield Avenue and South Street. But when these pioneers arrived, they were just two footpaths. And they gave this area its first English name, Turkey, because of all the wild turkeys in the woods. What do we know about the people who founded this church? They were tough, hard-working farmers who lived a, a life of back-breaking work from sunrise to sunset. They were risk-takers willing to move their families into an uninhabited wilderness in search of a better life. They were business entrepreneurs who believed in the universal law of life that if you sow good seed and you work hard, a bountiful harvest will come your way. Three things were most important to them, family, faith, and the future. Family because they were motivated to create a better life for their children, a, a life of opportunity, of, of religious and political freedom. That was uppermost in their minds. Faith, be, faith because they were sincere pietists, if you know what that word means. Pietists means Christians who were solidly in the stream of Puritan theology, but who, who fervently believed that their whole existence centered on the sovereign love of God. And the future, because they were farmers, and farmers have to believe in the future. They have to invest in the unknown future. Farmers never get instant results. They sow their seed, they tend their crops, and then they wait patiently, confidently for the coming harvest. They have to believe in a positive future. So it was natural for them that the very first building erected after their own log cabins was a meeting house, a Presbyterian meeting house, first constructed in 1736. The first pastor to set foot in that log cabin meeting house was the Reverend John Cleverly. He was a circuit rider preacher. That meant he rode his, his horse from one tiny church to another tiny church, faithfully preaching the gospel and helping these little seedling congregations grow to the point where they could afford to hire their own pastor. Rain or snow, winter winds or summer heat, John Cleverly was on his horse serving Jesus giving his best, all his energy, his time, his passion to help this little church flourish. He was the first pastor of this church and he sowed the seed of God's word and this little seedling grew. Then a man named John Blanchard donated 19 acres of land to the church and Turkey Christian Church was born with its location right here in 1737, 284 years ago. The congregation grew and a larger meeting house was built the very next year, or in 1738. It was 42 feet long and 32 feet wide, built in the style of an old New England meeting house. And because faith was central to their life, the meeting house literally became the center of the community. It was used for the town hall, the school, all community events. The church was literally the hub of everything. The pastor was even the school teacher. That is until 1768 when there were enough people in town for them to hire their own full-time teacher. Now a lot of you have probably heard the story about how in the 1750s the balcony in that meeting house, which was really just a, a, a number of loose boards laid across the rafters, they separated during a worship service and all the people on the top fell on the people on the bottom. No one was seriously injured and the people saw that as a sign of God's, what, providence. God's protective care. So they changed the name of the church from Turkey Christian Church to New Providence Presbyterian Church, and we're really glad they did. And then the town adopted the name in 1809. 
And that's why you'll see the church on the symbol of the town. What you may not know, though, is that over the last 284 years, this congregation has sometimes struggled to survive and several times almost failed completely. If you study this church's history, you'll see a cycle of growth and decline, up and down, sort of like a roller coaster. At least three times this church membership has dropped below 30 people, and the church was in danger of closing. But amazingly, God just wouldn't let that happen. His hand has always been on this place, and like a tenacious weed, this church would grow back from near extinction. I think that's why many of us believe God has his hand on this church in a very unique way. He has a special redemptive purpose that he wants this church to accomplish in this area. You may not also know, uh, among all those peaks and valleys, when this church had its highest weekly worship attendance, not Christmas and Easter, but regular Sunday worship. It was right after the time of the Revolutionary War. The church regularly had over 700 people in worship, and that figure has never been exceeded, even when the church's official membership swelled to over 1,600 people in the 1980s. Even with all those people as official members, the actual attendance never really got much more than 700. And we hit that 700 mark again in 2015, and now COVID, sadly, has kind of erased at least a third of that. But during that period of growth, the church was pastored by a man named the Reverend Jonathan Elmer. He ministered here longer than any other pastor, from 1757 to 1793. He stayed 36 years. In fact, he never really left. He's buried right out front. If you go out the sanctuary doors, turn right, he's the flat slab right by the door. But he grew this congregation to be a megachurch by standards of the 1700s. But at the close of Reverend Elmer's ministry, attendance had fallen to about 20. His popularity had faded dramatically, and that's one of the dangers of a pastor staying too long. <laughs> there was some kind of dispute over the church finances and the dealings in his business dealings in the community. It's not real clear in the historical records, but whatever it was, it was enough of a scandal that this church just emptied out from colonial megachurch to 20 people. That's quite a drop. And where did all those people go? They went right down the street to this brand new Methodist church that had just been planted and was having a real revival. It took the congregation another 30 years to dig itself out from the financial ruin caused by Reverend Elmer and to be spiritually healthy again. That's a whole generation of missed opportunity. Something unhealthy happened in the way Reverend Elmer led this church, but a faithful few hung in there, and eventually God brought revival again. So throughout the history of this church, there have been seasons of great growth and seasons of decline and seasons of just maintaining the status quo. But what has remained the same is the responsibility placed squarely on the shoulders of the head pastor to faithfully sow the seed of God's word so that the church can fulfill its mission to be a flourishing Christ-centered community. And that's why I look at this parable that I just read of the farmer maybe a little bit differently than you might. Most people look at the parable, they focus on the four types of soil that Jesus mentions. And that's correct. I mean, if you keep on reading in the Gospels, Jesus himself interprets this parable that way for his disciples. That there's the hard soil of the path, the rocky soil, uh, the, the soil that's rife with weeds, and then there's the good soil that produces a good crop. The interpretation that Jesus gives is that the soils represent four different kinds of people. The seed on the path are those who hear the word of God, 
Nothing happens, and it's like Satan comes like the birds at a bird feeder and just snatches it all away instantly. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the gospel. They're quick to respond, and then they're just as quick to fade away when they realize it's going to cost them some trouble or some persecution or some personal sacrifice. When it's no longer convenient to follow Jesus, they bail out. The third soil is the weedy ground where the seed springs up sincerely but just gets choked out by all the worries of life and the deceitful idol of riches. And that's probably the biggest category. Folks who are sincere in their faith but they just get consumed by other things and are just not fruitful for Christ in any observable way. And finally, the good soil, where the seed of God's word takes root and produces a huge crop. And then the challenge at the end of the parable, obviously, is, well, which soil are you? What kind of soil are you? Are you that's a good question, you know. What's your honest response to the gospel? But as a preacher, I look at this parable differently. I read it and I think, what a stupid farmer. Why is he just throwing a seed out like that so indiscriminately? I mean, he's wasting a lot of seed. He's tossing it on the path. Nobody's going to have, have, have a crop grow on the path. And he's throwing it on the rocks. He's throwing it on the reeds. Why doesn't he look what he's doing? Any lunkhead can just ta toss seed out there willy-nilly. He needs to focus and concentrate on the good soil. For me, as a preacher whose job, whose craft, whose passion, whose profession is to try and faithfully sow the Word of God, week after week, I'm sort of offended by the lazy job this guy's doing. He's wasting so much of his time and his resources and his energy on places where there will never produce anything. He needs to think about, you know, his return on investment and only go with the good soil. And so for a long time, I thought Jesus could have done a better job with the sower until about 13 years ago when I made my first visit to our mission partners in Bolivia, the Amistad Orphanage for abused and abandoned children. And boy, have I come to love those kids, especially the ones in the house that we fully fund. But as part of the trip, we take a two-day excursion up into the high Andes Mountains to visit the Quechua Indian village where Amistad got its start. It's a three-hour journey that is not for the faint of heart, up steep, narrow, twisty dirt rows with no guardrails and 500-foot drops, all the way up to about 12,000 feet. It's beautiful, but rocky and rugged, and a little bit terrifying if you don't like heights. But as our little bus was kind of rumbling up the narrow dirt road, I kept seeing all these small little patches of yellow spread out upon the mountains. No pattern, just kind of scattered everywhere on the steep mountainsides. And I asked our guide, well, what, what are those things? And she said, well, those are patches of wheat. She said, that's how the farmers have to grow their food or grow their crops. The ground is so rocky, it is so uneven that they could, they could just try to find any semi-level patch of ground that they can and they just throw seed on it and see what happens. The terrain is so rugged, that's all they can do. Toss the seed, just see if it'll grow. And if it does, then they tend that little field until they can reap a harvest. And that's when the farmer's role in Jesus' parable sort of made sense to me. In doing more research, I discovered that what Jesus describes was exactly the way farmers farmed in his day. The ground in Palestine was also sort of just hard and rocky. And so they just threw seed everywhere. There might even be the slightest possibility of it taking root. The slimmest chance. That was the normal way farmers farmed in Palestine. You sow the seed wherever, take a chance, see what happens. But the farmer's not responsible for the soil. Only the sowing. So it's really a parable about God's grace. 
God has the preacher throw the seed of God's word even on places that might not respond. The hard soil, the rocky soil, the weedy soil. They get God's word too. And so that's God's grace that all types of people are given the invitation, the opportunity. No matter what's going on in their heart, God through the faithful farmer, God throws the seed of his word in their direction. The hard-hearted, the weakly committed, the frantically distracted, they get God's seed too. And so the response is really theirs. It's their responsibility whether or not they can become good soil. It's not the farmers. God is throwing his gospel seed out in all directions, not just to some exclusive few. But everybody, everybody is on God's invitation list, his guest list. Every one of us is invited to flourish as good soil. God doesn't predetermine what kind of soil you are. It's your choice how you respond. And understanding that is really freeing for me as a preacher. Because I always labored with the feeling that the way people responded to Christ was on my shoulders. That if I was good enough, if I was clever enough, if I was impactful enough, told enough funny stories, that that would be what would move people to become good soil. But then I realized that wasn't true. I couldn't control anyone's response no matter how well I preached the word. So yes, my job is to try and do my very best to be as clear and authentic and as accurate as possible, to be faithful in how I present God's word, but not to be responsible for how people respond to the gospel. That's above my pay grade. Because as soon as a pastor begins to feel responsible for the response, they become entertainers. Desperate to keep an audience, to keep people interested, desperate for numbers, desperate to be clever, desperate to appear relevant and hip. And there are a lot of pastors who are entertainer, entertainers who are just kind of playing to the crowd. Understanding the role of the farmer in this parable helps me to know my mission. My calling has always just to been a seed thrower. To be a seed thrower wherever there might be even the slightest chance of a response. That really freed me to do my job. It's one of the main reasons I've been able to last 22 years here where most pastors leave a congregation after five or six. I don't carry the spiritual weight of the church on my, as my personal burden. Now, I've often felt the organizational weight of the church on my shoulders, and that has weighed me down. I understand the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11 where he describes the many trials and shipwrecks and difficulties he's been through, but then he tops it all off by saying, besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. It's in 2 Corinthians 11. I've only got one church to worry about. Paul had all the churches, and I can't imagine the pressure that he felt. But, but knowing my mission to be a seed thrower, that is what has helped me kind of stay on target all these years. And that's what I thought would guide me as I came into my very last year at New Providence. And then COVID happened. <laughs> and everything went upside down. Honestly, I'd been looking forward to my last year because in my mind, it, I thought it was going to be like that final run down a ski slope. You know, you just nice, gentle, smooth, big curves, just enjoying the view, and then you're at the ski lodge drinking hot cocoa. Well, that didn't happen. Instead of a gentle ski slope, this past year has been like skiing on gravel. It's even hard to remember just how awful and confusing everything was 16 months ago. I've sort of blocked it out of my mind, I think. When we had to shut the church and we were transitioning to only online, wondering what was going to happen to the congregation, what was going to happen to our sense of fellowship, our giving. Would we be even able to hold our church together? 
Everything got stripped down to the basics, and it was very hard. It hit the whole community, but it hit the churches really hard. But we have such a great team of staff and volunteers and good, steady leadership from the elders. And looking back on it now, I'm just so proud of the way we responded as a church, the way you all responded, not just to keep your church alive, but to continue to fulfill our mission to be a light for Christ in the community. And over the years, God sometimes gives me a visual image to help me stay focused on what my mission is supposed to be in life. For example, as many of you were here during the process when we were seeking to leave our former denomination, and it was such a complicated and such a stressful and really potentially damaging experience that it was starting to get to me. God brought to my mind the image of whitewater rafting, which is both thrilling and potentially dangerous at the same time. And I kind of kept that image in my head throughout the dismissal process, and it helped me stay focused. Well, very early into the COVID crisis, I believe God brought another image to mind that I thought would kind of help me stay focused during my ministry here. It's a famous story from World War II. It takes a little long to explain, but I want to share it with you now. During World War II, you remember Germany was under, or, uh, Germany under the control of Adolf Hitler had basically taken over all of Europe. The only the island countries of England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland had been able to hold out against them. And once America got into the war, everyone knew that at some point the Allies would have to cross the English Channel and invade Europe to beat back Hitler's army. The invasion was called D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944, when hundreds of thousands of American and British and French and coalition forces, they all sailed from England, stormed the beaches of northern France at Normandy, and if you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan or the HBO special uh, The Band of Brothers or the classic The Longest Day, those tell the story of the D-Day invasion. But it was anybody's guess whether or not the invasion would succeed. The most important factor was that since the Germans didn't know exactly where the Allies were going to land, they kept a lot of their army, especially their really fearsome Panzer tanks, they kept them in reserve so when the invasion came, they could just send them to the right spot and stop the Allies cold on the beach. And the Allies knew this, so before any soldiers landed on the beaches of France, they sent commandos, special forces, into France behind enemy lines to secure the most important bridges so that the Germans would not be able to move their tanks and troops and crush the invasion. The most important bridge is now named the Pegasus Bridge. It spanned the Orne River in northern France, and it was absolutely essential that the Allies take the Pegasus Bridge, or else all of D-Day could have been a total failure. And so a small company of 180 British Airborne Commandos, D Company of the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, led by a man named Major John Howard, were given the task of taking the Pegasus Bridge. They were the very first Allied soldiers into battle on D-Day. Major Howard's orders were twofold. First, he was to take the bridge in what was called a coup de main attack. That's a French military term that just means a surprise attack with everything you've got, no reserves, nothing held back, no plan B. Quite literally, you either do it or you die trying. So around 1 a.m. on the morning of the 6th of June, Major Howard and his men were flown into France in these big wooden gliders released from regular airplanes. And these gliders would would kind of silently swoop in like owls under the cover of darkness. They landed hard, they skidded to a stop just 30 yards from the bridge. 
unbelievable. The commandos charged out of those gliders, hit the soldiers guarding the bridge before they even knew it was happening. It worked perfectly. Total surprise. The total battle lasted 10 minutes. War historians now say it was the most important 10 minutes of World War II. But there was a second part to Major Howard's orders, and this is the part that means something to me. After capturing the bridge, he and his 180 men had to hold the bridge until relieved. Hold until relieved. And that was going to take another 12 hours before reinforcements could arrive. And so for 12 hours, these 180 men withstood the withering assault of everything the Nazi army could possibly throw at them. It was a blistering battle to hold the bridge till just after noon the next day, 1202, when British troops from the 1st Special Service Brigade arrived with Scottish bagpipes blaring as they marched forward. Major Howard and the men of his company had accomplished their mission to hold the bridge. You can read about this in Stephen Ambrose's great book called The Pegasus Bridge, if you'd like. But I felt that was the image God gave me for my final year. Maybe I'm being a little bit overly dramatic, but that's what it felt like my mission was, to hold until relieved. This past year wasn't a time for us to, as a church, to engage the enemy in, in new territory, but a, but a year to protect what we had and not to lose ground to the enemy to keep us together as a church community because on top of everything else we had to keep going with the process to search for a new senior pastor and that was a tough job even in the best of circumstances and our pastor nominating committee they just stayed faithful God bless their efforts and now this week Jeff Lee takes over the reins of the church I don't think there'll be bagpipes blaring when he arrives but I do have the sense that for me reinforcements have landed and I can hand over responsibility for the church to him. And hopefully be able to say mission accomplished. Our church is still battered. We've been bruised by the COVID year, but the timing is so right for a new beginning. Praise God. For a new season for this church, now that the COVID crisis year has passed, there's a lot of rebuilding that has to be done. Many new ministries to begin. Many new people to touch. So do your part to help Jeff Lee as he takes charge to pray for him and his family to encourage him to do everything you can to support his vision for the future of the church. And please put your picture and the profile <laughs> on the corner. How many times do I have to say that? <laughs> but I would be remiss if I didn't take a moment to thank my wife, Donna, for being such a great partner all these years. A partner in marriage, Yesterday we celebrated 45 years together. She was obviously a child bride. <laughs> and as a present, we bought a house <laughs> in Keene, New Hampshire, where we're gonna be moving. But she's also been such a great partner in ministry. 
and has really had her own calling from the Lord, quite apart from mine. Calling to be a great Bible teacher, which many of you have experienced. A great leader of creative women's ministries, a spiritual mentor to so many younger women over the years, all with her very special touch of hospitality. And often, I've actually felt that the real reason I was called into ministry was to provide Donna with a platform so that she could carry out her ministry, and that her ministry would actually have more kingdom impact than mine would. Can we thank her? So thank you for being such a great congregation. Thank you for giving me the privilege of bringing God's word to you week after week. Thank you for the many ways you have inspired and nourished me and Donna and our son Jonathan. It has been quite a ride. I was just thinking as I, we were singing, none of this was here 22 years ago. None of it, you know, this was an empty space. And so much has happened over 22 years, not just the physical building, but the people who are the building, who are the church, and how much that has changed too. It's been quite a ride. I'm grateful to have shared it with you. Keep scattering the seed of God's word, and I wish you all of God's many blessings. Amen. Thank you.